Well, if you'd open your Bibles back up to 2 Samuel, we'll uh, continue our series. If you haven't been with us, we've been working through this book. I have to say, this is one of the largest crowds I've ever preached in front of, and I'm pretty excited. Um, well, I wanted to start out with a question this morning, and that is, is your worship small? Is that sense of awe and, and heart of praise just kind of small in your life? Does your, does your praise and, and prayer life just kind of seem there, a little humdrum? There's no excitement about God and the gospel. You believe it. You come to church dutifully, but your faith seems disconnected from your everyday plans and hopes and dreams. It's, it's just not that exciting for you. You sing praise songs on Sunday, you enjoy it sometimes, and sometimes you get really into it, especially if it's a song that, that, that you like. Beyond, but beyond this, you don't find yourself uh, too excited or moved as a Christian. There's no welling up of praise to God in your life. Your worship is just sort of small. Well, I want to suggest, or I want to say that this text suggests that this might simply be because your view of God's work and his salvation is also very small. Your understanding of what God has done and is doing in both you and this world is just way too small. If your worship is small, your God and his salvation work and your understanding of it is small. Maybe it's just, maybe it's been bigger at some time in your life, but right now it has shrunken down and is small. And if this might be you, or you feel a little that way, pay attention to this passage this morning because here David's worship kind of explodes. It goes from zero to a hundred. We see this dramatic transformation of David's worship life. The text from the beginning to the end of it is just this incredible prayer of, of worship, this declaration and exclamation and supplication and gratitude. It's just full of it. But it doesn't come out of nowhere. There's this shift that's, that's come about in David. If you remember from last week, David had kind of come to this early arrival in his kingdom life, right? He had he'd come to be established in Jerusalem with all the tribes there, and they're at peace, and he's secure, and he's settled in his cedar palace. Remember last week, he's there in his cedar palace. The palace has been built, and he thought, I've arrived, this, this is it. The, the work of God is done. It's time for me to get the ark and build a big building for it, build a church. And he thinks this is it. It doesn't get any better than this. But then God, through his prophet Nathan, reminded David that he, God, wasn't ready to settle down at all. 
He wasn't even close to done with his salvation kingdom work in this world. He didn't need David to build him a house. He didn't want one. He was going to build David a house, a lineage of salvation. Even after David is is long and gone, he's going to bring through his line a forever kingdom with a king who would bring true peace and rest, a king who would establish his people in their true eternal home forever, a king who would be his very own beloved son and would rule the universe into eternity. God had way bigger plans for David and his house. He was to be part of his salvation plan for all mankind, for all history. And David, as he, as he hears this, it is expanded. His eyes are lifted from his limited view of God's work in his present little kingdom to God's massive eternal salvation work. And he responds in what I would call big worship. And we see what it looks like here. We see what it looks like to get what God is doing, to get what God is doing in your life and in this world, and respond in in this big, joyous worship. We see three aspects of his worship here. And first, I want us to note that he responds by marveling at the grace of God. Look at verse 18. Look at the very start of our text. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? David, as he's reminded of of God's promises and plans of salvation that are much bigger than his, leaves his palace and goes to that tent where the ark is and sits before the Lord and cries out, Who am I, O Lord? This is the beginning of of, of what I would say is is true worship. Humility before the overwhelming grace of God in his own life. He can't believe that God has chosen him for all this. Look back at at verse 8 from Andrew's sermon last week. It says, when, when Nathan's bringing this word to him, it says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. God chose David to be prince over his people, his king. Out of what? out of being a wandering shepherd in the desert, a random sheep herder. Now, we sometimes have a kind of a pretty picture of that, but when I was uh, in Israel a few years ago with my wife, and we were on the tour bus, and we would end up in these long traveling through the desert in between the towns, it just looks like endless, scorching desert. It looks like if you were out there 10 minutes, you would die. And suddenly we would see this guy off in the distance with some sheep, and, and he's all covered up, and the wind's blowing against him. It's sandy. And you go, 
What a horrible existence. How does he even survive? How does anybody, does anybody even know he exists on this planet? This mangy guy in the desert with his mangy sheep. What a struggling, hard, lowly, stinky life. That's what David's life was. It wasn't this pretty scene you see in the children's book. It's about as low as it gets. It's a speck in the desert. But God chose to reach down and make him prince of his people, his leader, his king. And more than that, David, David says, look at the second half of verse 18, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Not only did God choose him out of his sheer grace, but he has preserved him all the way along. He's brought him thus far. And think of all that means. If you were here for the first Samuel series, you would know the Lord has brought him through a lot. Battle after battle after battle with the Philistines, the Lord has preserved David, this little shepherd boy, facing a nine-foot, 500-pound giant with just a few stones. The Lord preserved him. Eleven assassination attempts by Saul and then being chased for months by Saul's army. The Lord preserved him. The kidnapping of his wife and children by the Amalekites. The Lord preserved him. The loss of his best friend Jonathan. The Lord brought him through. Not to mention all the slander and all the despair and depression that he struggled with. The Lord brought him through. As David looks back at his past, he sees that God has been fulfilling his plan and his life, keeping his promises and sustaining him with grace after grace after grace. And it's the catalyst of his worship. It's the heart of his, of his explosion of this big worship in his life. He's, he steps out of his cedar palace, sits down before the Lord, and he gets this perspective, and suddenly he sees the steadfast grace of God in his life, and it ignites praise and declaration before God and his people. You see, if you're struggling with, with kind of small worship in your life, Take a moment to look back and consider all the grace you've received. The repeated sustaining grace of God in your life. How he chose you out of darkness and helplessness by his sheer grace. And he's brought you thus far. I know many of your stories. I've heard your grace stories. A lot of them start with addiction. Some of them start with poverty. Some of them start with enslavement to lust or ruinous anger. Some of them start with just crippling, self-righteous, religious pride that had you in utter hopelessness. Many of them involve complete relational brokenness and despair. I know your stories. I know my own story. And we need to remember, like David, all the past grace 
of God, how he grabbed a hold of us and made us his, even though we didn't deserve it. Who were we? How he has sustained us thus far so that we're sitting today in his presence with his people. We need to remember, we need to, be, we need to remind each other. But the thing is, God's grace, this incredible grace, is not just past, is it? Did you notice that there's an anticipatory element of David's worship here? Look at verse 19. And yet this, talking about all that past grace, yet this was a small thing in your eyes. Oh, Lord God, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind. David says, you have promised me a future house, God. He's talking about the forever kingdom that he's going to bring through David, the promised reign of God's son, bringing an eternal home for his people, which he'll bring through David's line. David sees it. He has some grasp of it here. He sees all the past grace of God, the present sustaining grace of God, and the future grace of God, the promise of his future house, which, of course, is the grounds for, for any real hope in this life. See, God's grace continues. And what's interesting is he doesn't just see it to him. He sees it expanding, doesn't he? He says, this is instruction for mankind. The fact that, that his great house uh, it will come, that it's going to be established. He says, this is instruction for mankind. This truth of God's kingdom come. The word is Torah, instruction. This is Torah for mankind. It's the law of mankind. Some, some translations say charter. It's the destiny. The promise of God's house the kingdom of God established forever is a promise that will expand out of David, out of Israel, to all mankind. It's a promise that's come to us, hasn't it? In Christ. David sees this past, present, and future expanding grace of God that he's been chosen to be part of, and he is just marveling. <clears throat> he's literally speechless. Look at verse 20. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. You've done it all, Lord. It's out of your heart. It's not out of me. It's not about what we've done. It's out of your heart. It's out of your grace. In verse 22, therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Notice that he switches to we and are there, the plural. David is not alone. Nathan has brought the word of God to David and all his people. The revelation of his salvation plan, he's declared it before them and now David is declaring before God and all who can hear 
all in earshot in that tent or around that tent, what God has done for him by grace and what God is doing in this world, his awesome grace. And he's marveling out loud at the grace of God. This is the heart of big worship, marveling out loud at the grace of God, declaring it. If you're struggling with worship, if you're humdrum in your Christian walk, this is probably what you've lost track of. You've kind of lost your awe over God's big, expansive grace in your life and in this world. And you have to ask why. Why have you lost track of that? Is there something else that has become the focus of your spiritual attention in a sense that's captured your awe? Maybe it's the material hopes and promises of this world that have snuck into your life and have been sort of Christianized. You know, the the promise of wealth and stuff and comfort and leisure in this world, the stuff the commercials say we should be living for. Maybe it's crept into your Christian framework. It's kind of like, yay, God, you bring me prosperity and material blessing and comfort and safe existence. And uh, I don't really feel like going to church. Because it's really not that exciting, is it? It's hard to work up a marveling worship over the promises of the good living section of the newspaper. My friends, the prosperity gospel, besides being untrue, is just boring. To make God's work all about the limited circumstances of my own personal comfort is just so small, and it evokes small worship. We must see God's expansive salvation grace both personally and out to the world and marvel at it. And this brings me to the second element of David's big worship here, and that is Israel's privilege. Not only does he marvel at the grace of God in his own life, he revels in the privilege of God's people. Look at verse 23. Let's read it. And who is like your people, Israel? Notice he's moved in his worship from, and who am I, verse 18, to, and who is like your people, Israel? He is expanding his vision of God's working, and thus he's expanding his praise. Who is like them, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. He says, who's like them? What nation can compare? Think about that. I mean, every nation has its claims to greatness. It's interesting we have all these nations' flags here today. Because every, every nation can have its claims. To, you know, Italy, home of the Pope, and pizza. Greece, we invented math. England, longest-running modern monarchy and home of Downton Abbey. America, the most successful democratic republic 
an ethnic melting pot ever. But Israel, chosen by our creator God to be his redeemed people, you can't top that. Nothing even compares. Who is like them? Nobody. Nobody even comes close. According to the scriptures, all people, all nations, all the world was lost in rebellion, enslaved in sin, deservedly under the judgment of God. But God, again, in his sheer grace, reached down and chose one people. He came to Abraham, Israel, to make them his special people. And he redeemed them out of slavery. And he brought them to to his special land of blessing. And he gave them a kingdom home with him. There, his presence. And he made them the, the means of his salvation work in the world. That all the world should be blessed through them. This is why it says here, he makes his name great through them. And he judges the rebellious nations like Egypt through them. They are his tool for his salvation work. And these promises go all the way back to Abraham, even that they would be a means of blessing out to the whole world. Goes back to Abraham. What a privilege. Not only is David graced personally, but he is part of an incredibly graced people. God's chosen people, his redeemed people, his preserved people, his protected people, his empowered people, his forever people, his people of blessing to the whole nation. That's enviable, isn't it? It's a little better than being, you know, the people of baseball and pickup trucks in the home of the Whopper. It's hard not to be jealous. It seems unfair. Why them? But here's the thing we must remember. Here's the thing that's exciting for us this morning as we stand this side of the cross looking back. Just as David is a shadow of God's ultimate king to come, King Jesus, his forever king of redemption and blessing, in the same way, Israel, God's people, is a shadow of us. Not as Americans, but as his church. Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, Italians, Brits, Germans, Americans, Africans, everyone who is in Christ by faith. We are the new people of God, the receivers of his redemption and the blessings that, he, that flow from him and his forever kingdom. And even more, we are his new means of blessings to the nations as we go out with the gospel. The New Testament says this over and over again. One of my favorite places is when Peter says it in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. This is how he puts it as he's speaking to the church. He says, but you are a chosen race. Right? That, that's Israel terms, but he's speaking to the church. All those different ethnicities, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Grace upon grace. My friends, if your worship life is small and you struggle to be excited in your praise, get a hold of this huge reality. This right here. God's chosen people, his redeemed people, the people of his blessing, his royal priest, who is like us. Do we know this this morning? Do you know this? Do we believe it? I think it's often easy to forget. We get caught up in all our own little kingdoms and we lose our perspective. We forget who we are and what we're part of and how great and gracious our God is. And this is why, even on super hot days, we need to come together. We need to come and hear God's words together. We can't neglect this. Because how was David's vision expanded here? Right? How, how did David suddenly rise from his small understanding of what God was doing, just kind of in his circumstances, little world, to God's vision and God's work? How did it happen for David? And then it just ignited this praise in his life. Well, if you look back, you know, Nathan the prophet brought him God's word. Chapter 7, verse 4. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. And he ends it with that in verse 17. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all the vision, Nathan spoke to David. He took God's revealed word about his salvation plan for the world that was tied to David, and he let David know. He lifted his eyes, showed him the big picture with God's revealed word. He reveals to him God's incredible kingdom plan. His forever kingdom, his plan of salvation. My friends, that is what we have right here. That's what this is. This is the, that's what the word of God is. God's incredible salvation plan. And we have it way bigger than David had it. We have the story from beginning to end. We get to look where David sits in the story. We have what the prophets long to look into. The past prophets, they wanted to know how it was going to work out. What was going to happen. First Peter says, we have it. How it all works out in Christ. We have the gospel. We have the good news. The revealing of the mystery of God's plan of salvation. If we want to have big worship, we must be sitting before God's word together. Exhorting and teaching and remembering and encouraging each other in his word. No word, no worship. And this brings me to the last element of David's worship here that must always be part of our worship here, and that is pleading. David marvels at God's grace. He revels at the privilege of God's people and being part of it. And finally, he pleads. He pleads God's promises. Look at verse 25. Look at the shift here. 
And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. He says, Lord, make it all happen. Do what you promised. And in the next four verses, he recounts the promises back to God. I'm not going to read through them. I'll just summarize. He says, Lord, you promised to build me a house, my people, a house. Lord, you've promised to establish your kingdom forever. Lord, you've promised to be our God of hosts, our protector. Lord, you've promised to bless us as your people. Do as you have spoken to your glory that you may be magnified. You see, David, as he's expanded by God's word, has moved from his small plans to build an ark, and put the ark, excuse me, in a fancy building, to praying for God's will, for his plan, his expansive plan to be done. And we don't just see passion in this prayer. We see here a turn to confidence. Look at verse 27. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. David prays with courage because he's praying the very promises of God, the words that are true. You want to find joy and confidence in your prayer life and your worship life? Pray, plead the promises of God. You know, we, we do live this side of the cross, and we've seen some of the very things David is praying for come true in Christ. But the fullness of his kingdom work, of God's kingdom work, is still out there before us. And we must plead God's promises with courage. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Big worship always involves big prayer. We may have a small church, but let's be a people of big worship. Let's encourage and exhort each other daily to always be marveling at God's grace. Always be reveling in the privilege of being his people. And always be pleading his promises. So let's pray. Father, Lift our eyes, we ask. Help us to see beyond our, our little circumstances and see your incredible grace and see your plan of salvation and all our privilege as your people that our worship may be, may be expanded and joyful. We plead your promises. May we be a people of big worship. Amen.